we've put together a brand new sample of RAR Premium. So if you've been on the fence about joining us inside RAR Premium, you can get a free sample now to see if it's a good fit for your family. To get that free sample, go to readaloudrevival.com slash sample or just text the word RAR sample like it's all squished together in one word. <laughs> RAR sample to the number 33777. Okay, here's the show. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here. It's episode 114 of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. I have an author here to talk with you today, and I just loved chatting with Susan Tan. She is the author of a couple of books about Scylla Lee Jenkins, who's a biracial American Chinese girl. These books are perfect for your kids if they love the antics in the Ramona Quimby books. They remind me a little bit in style of Beverly Cleary's writing. They're fun, they're spunky, they're lighthearted, but they also address some meaningful issues. And I really, really enjoyed them. In just a second, I'm going to introduce you to Susan Tan. Now, before I do that, I want to make sure you know where you can get the online Read Aloud Revival book list, and you can download it for free by texting the word books to the number 345-345. Just text the word books to 345-345, or you can go right to rarbooklist.com, and you'll get a lot of really great Read Aloud suggestions depending on what your kids are interested in and all that good stuff. So. Don't forget to grab it, and let's see. I think we're ready for the show. Let's get on with the show. Susan Tan has lived a life of books. From being named most likely to be a children's book writer in her middle school yearbook, to working in her local library, to earning a PhD in critical approaches to children's literature, Susan has been immersed in book culture for most of her life. The author of the wonderful and completely delightful Scylla Lee Jenkins books based on her own family and the challenges she experienced growing up. Susan, I am so thrilled to talk to you today. Welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm going to be chatting with you. Well, I discovered you last year. I think you might have commented actually on the Instagram post. I, <laughs> I had heard from somebody, oh, this is, I can't remember who I heard it from. This is a fun book. So I thought, well, that looks like a fun book. So I'm just going to grab it. <laughs> Read it outside in the summer while I was you know, watching my kids play. Mm -hmm. Just fell, I mean, there's so much to love about Zilla. So for listeners... Susan Tan's first book is Scylla Lee Jenkins, Future Author Extraordinaire. And the second is Scylla Lee Jenkins, This Book is a Classic. Of course, we're going to have links in the show notes to both of those, which are at readaloudrevival.com slash 114. Okay, so Susan, Scylla reminds me in some ways of Ramona Quimby in that she's like impossible not to love, even when she's being a little bit impossible. I just love her. And she loves books. Well which means she's a main character. I think the kids listening to this podcast are going to absolutely adore because the kids listening to this podcast and their parents 
love books too. So let's start with where you got the idea for Scylla. Where did that come from? So Scylla is very much based on my own life. Any bit in Scylla that includes, you know, accidentally knocking something over, right? Or saying something with, you know, meaning very well and making a huge mess of things, right? All of that is generally 100% true. Um, (laughs) Also, a lot of the very, a lot of Scylla's quirks, for example, Scylla is bald for a long time during her childhood and wants to wear bows and they have to tape them to her head. That's all true. So (laughs) a lot of Scylla came from my life and a lot of Scylla's family came from my life. But I actually, I got the idea for Scylla from the idea of reimagining actually something from my life. And so like Scylla, I'm mixed race and my dad's family is Chinese. And as a child, and quite frankly, also as an adult, I get asked, what are you a lot? Particularly as a child, I would be asked that. And as a child, it was particularly disconcerting because these were adults who I was supposed to answer. Hmm. You know, an adult asks you a question, you feel, well, you know, I need, I need to be respectful, I need to answer. But usually as well, this question would be asked in, or the question itself is a very othering question. You know, there yeah. you are playing with your friends and they're normal, but what are you? And you think, you know, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Right. So, yeah. So as an adult, this question still gets asked of me, but of course, as an adult, I have more agency, more power, more of a voice, but it, it still really gets to me. So basically the idea for Scylla came to me because I, I began to imagine a, what I, how I would have liked those conversations to go when I was a child. And I began to imagine a child who didn't understand the question, but in not understanding it was able to reclaim it. So the premise for Scylla comes from someone asking, what are you? And her saying, you know, oh my gosh, I, I don't know. You know, no one's ever asked me this question before, but, but if I have to pick now, I guess I'll be a future literary genius. You know, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. so, and I, I, I was not that way at all as a child, I should say, I wish I was, but sort of, it was, it was that moment and that encounter and that claiming of identity and voice and, and ambition as well for this young girl that sort of brought the idea to life. And then I sort of took that idea and molded it onto a lot of the very funny things I did as a child. And that's sort of how Scylla came into the world. And that's actually even a scene in the first book, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's funny. I think in the first book, that's chapter three. And um, that was actually the first piece of Scylla I ever wrote. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah. 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 So the book kind of shaped around it. Which makes sense because that's very a very Scylla moment, her response. And so I can see how you were able to build her character off of that moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a perfect way to put it. I think I'd been thinking about writing a book for a while, but that's kind of when the voice and character solidified for me. And that sort of enabled me to create the book around her. Okay. So when did you know you wanted to be an author? Uh, that's, that's such a great question. I'm laughing because it's in your introduction. <laughs> and it's just such a funny story because... So I loved books as a child. And actually, just to say as well, I actually had a very hard time learning how to read. So that's also in the Scylla books that Mm -hmm. Scylla, when she's younger, has difficulties reading. That's absolutely true. So I loved books. I loved stories, but I couldn't access them. And I was always really behind in my classes. And I actually, I have this very, uh, even now, still very kind of visceral moment and memory when I was in first grade on the first day of school, we all sat down and the teacher wrote something on the board. And it was something along the lines of, you know, welcome to first grade. And she said, please copy this down. And everyone was copying it down. And I literally, I, I didn't even know what the letters were. I was, it was like drawing shapes. 
you know, and just sort of copying a circle with a line down. I remember this, these intense feelings of anger and sort of anger at myself and shame, and I didn't want anyone to know. So I say all this because I, for a long time, reading was really fraught for me. And I had wonderful teachers and my parents and everyone sort of worked together to help me. So when I finally did learn how to read, it really was this kind of magic, you know, and this magic that I had worked so long for. And, you know, and being able, it, it literally felt like the biggest treat to be able to sit down and kind of enter a book world by myself. You know, see, now I, you could get the stories for yourself, these things that you already yeah. loved so much, but now you could get them on your own, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Absolutely. And, and so that very much shaped the, who I became um, in that I was always the kid sitting in a corner reading and with precisely that feeling, you know, of, wow, like what magic I can go to Narnia by myself. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And my name was Susan. So it was perfect. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But so, so I loved children's books. And in middle school, I might always had a very close relationship with the children's room of my public library. And once I was able to work and get an after school job, I worked in the children's room. And it was always just a given that I would work there. So I say all this because I love children's books, all things children's books, but I never actually thought about writing until what I believe was the last week of eighth grade. When in our yearbook, they gave everyone a a most likely to be profession. And most of them were really silly, like ninja or, you know, SNL host, something like that. But mine was children's book writer. When I saw that in the yearbook, most likely to be a children's book writer, my reaction was literally to go, oh, you know, that makes sense. Wow. And that was sort of it. That was the first time I'd ever considered writing books on my own. And it just, it felt like it clicked. It felt perfect. So it's a kind of, it's a really funny kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I love it. And I love that the people around you saw it in you before you did. I, I just right? love that. Yeah. You no, know, Do you know, I really want to try to find out who was on that committee because I, I don't know. And I'm so curious for that reason. They, they observed me so well, yeah. better, better than I knew myself. So I know you studied children's literature in college. And one of the things I have... I don't know if I've heard you say it or if I've read it. I'm not really, I don't really remember. I know we've, you've talked before about the lack of diversity in children's mm-hmm. books. Wondering if that's something that you sort of discovered while you were studying literature in college or tell me more about that experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to say as well, sort of thinking about listeners and parents who are interested in writing, my path to writing children's books was not a linear one at all. And so I had that moment with the eighth grade yearbook when I thought, well, I want to be a children's book writer. But I actually, as I got older, didn't pursue writing very much. In fact, my studies shifted towards literature in general. So that's how I began studying children's literature. And I began studying children's literature in college. I was really, really lucky. And I had the opportunity to go study abroad in England. And there I took a class on British children's literature. And I was really fascinated with the genre. And I was really fascinated with with exactly what you're saying. The history of representation in children's literature and also the uses of children's literature. So for example, in college, I studied children's texts that were used by uh, merchant families, say stationed in China. And I looked at a lot of children's literature that was used as a sort of justification for occupation and for hierarchies, particularly racial hierarchies, right, in various spaces. So then, so that that's what got me into children's literature. And then later on, um, so I was very lucky again, 
after college, I got a fellowship to go to graduate school in the UK. So I went back and then I pursued my uh, master's degree and then a PhD focusing exclusively on children's literature. And so in those studies, I was looking at contemporary young adult and middle grade literature. And it's so interesting because this question of diversity, um, it's absolutely something I talk about. And I'll be honest that when I first entered the field, I had no idea how little representation there is. Mm, Um, And when I was growing up, so when I was growing up, um, there was really only one book I ever found that had a mixed race Asian American protagonist. And I, I treasured that book. It was mm-hmm. so important to me and influential to me. It's um, Lawrence Yep's The Thief of Hearts. I was going to say, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And so finding that book was such a watershed moment for me. And sort of, and I literally, it's so funny. I could draw the cover for you. You know, if we were speaking on the stage and we had a notepad, I could draw the cover for you in perfect detail. And the passages where the protagonist, Stacey, who's mixed race, there are passages where she talks about what she looks like and how she worries about what she looks like when she's in Chinatown versus in her predominantly white school. Sort of all of these things were things that I had always felt, but thought I was alone in feeling. And yeah, and and having that sort of resonance and commonality for the first time, you know, I was, I remember kind of shaking. I think I was about 10 years old and, you know, just so gripped by this experience. So all this to say that I had the memory of that really powerful moment. And then afterwards, I found out that there weren't many other books like it. So I had that memory. But as I approached children's literature in my graduate studies, I approached with the idea of, oh, good thing things are better now. You know, phew. (laughs) Um, and, And it wasn't until, so it really wasn't until I began to read more widely in contemporary, particularly middle grade literature, that I sort of looked around and thought, wait a minute, you know, is it better? Right. And that, yeah. And that sparked me to begin researching and realizing that actually, you know, it was a little bit better. Right. But in fact, (laughs) (laughs) I think, what is it? There's the Lee and Lowe statistic from the wonderful publishers, Lee and Lowe, that um, something like 37 percent of the U.S. population are people of color, Mm -hmm. but only 13 percent of children's books in the past 24 years has had diverse content. Wow. You know, and yeah, I mean, it's such a staggering statistic. And yeah, and, and I think that that's sort of it was it was those numbers and sort of the realization right of that lack that really pulled me in. And just what's funny as well is that, you know, and, and just speaking of this, my sort of writing journey that began with, right, I can't read to maybe I'll be a writer to I'll be an academic, not a writer. It was in my academic studies as I confronted this gap that I suddenly thought, well, you know, where are the books that I wanted as a kid? And my sisters are getting older and my cousins were having children, you know, and I was thinking, where are the books that I want them, you know, and their kids to read? And that really is what inspired me to start writing. So weirdly, going to academia led me right back to writing. So I've heard you say it's so important to give kids literature that reflects the reality of the world they live in. Can you talk to me more about that? What do you mean by that? Yes. Uh, what a fabulous question. Kind of going back to the story I just shared about Lawrence Yap, seeing Kids need to see themselves in literature and they need to see other people in literature. And in saying this, Dr. I'm quoting and drawing on Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, yes, who's a professor of library sciences at Ohio State University. And she wrote, as I'm sure you know, about windows and mirrors and the notion that 
There are several kinds of books, right? We have mirrors that allow kids and readers to see themselves, or at least a facet of themselves reflected back at them. And those mirrors affirm their humanity. They affirm that they are not alone, right? They affirm sort of their potential to have so many different facets and stories. And then there are windows where they can see other people and windows where they learn about other people and their empathy for other people grows, right? And they learn about the world beyond themselves. It's so, there's so many stories out there. I mean, one thing I always say to kids is, you know, you can love books. You know, I love books. I adore books. And growing up, most books weren't about me and I could still adore them, but there were still stories I needed. And I think there will sort of my message to kids and to writers is always write those stories you want to see. Who is it that said we read to know we're not alone? Was that C.S. Lewis or? Yes, I, it's so funny you say that. I've been thinking about that quote recently. I don't know who it's by. I'm going to look it up real quick. Please do. I will, I will attribute everything to C.S. Lewis if I'm not careful. So (laughs) that seems fair. I I love C.S. Lewis. (laughs) The internet's get telling me either William Nicholson or C.S. Lewis. So, ah, okay. you were, <laughs> so you were, you were, there's a 50% chance that you were right. <laughs> right. Um, really, you know, particularly when it comes to imagination, it's so critical to be able to imagine yourself in different ways. And growing up, I, if you had asked me sort of what reading was on a literal level, yeah, I think I actually, I just envisioned that reading is inherently reading exciting stories about really interesting people who inherently don't look like you, you know, because that's what my reading experience was. And so, and it was an absence that I didn't realize until I found The Thief of Hearts by Lawrence Yeb. And I just had this moment. It was this wonderful moment of commonality, but it was also sort of a slap in the face, you know, realizing, wait a minute, like I, I get a story. And so it's, I just think it is, it's so vital and important for kids' imaginative lives. And just another resource, I would also really suggest checking out the CCBC. So the Cooperative Children's Book Center releases statistics on diversity in children's literature every year. And a group of scholars, among them Dr. Sarah Park Dalen at the University of Minnesota and others, and I, I feel badly, I just can't quite remember their names at the moment, but they created an infographic that breaks down all the statistics about diversity in children's literature into a visual image. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's a lovely resource. It's really interesting. And just, and so I know you don't have it in front of you, but I will just say that one thing they did that I think was so brilliant is that each child, so they have children from various backgrounds, each child is looking in a mirror and their mirror is bigger depending on the percentage of the representation in literature. Oh, Wow. And what's so wonderful about sort of what it shows and it ties into exactly what you're saying is that so you have on the far end a white child, right, who has mirrors everywhere, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and mirrors. And in one, he's playing basketball and another, right, his shoes can fly and another, he's an astronaut, another, he's a president, right? So you have all those possibilities, all those imaginative avenues opening. But as you go down the line and representation decreases, your mirror gets smaller and smaller. Right. And you be, you you don't see all those things. Right. You see yourself. And then as the mirror gets smaller, maybe you just see a part of yourself or a distorted vision of yourself. So I just think it's a really great tool and a great way to think about it, because it just shows. Right. What we want is to give all children all those mirrors. Right. That all children should be able to open books and say, you know, today I'll be president, you know, today I'll be an astronaut and on and on and on. Exactly. Oh, okay. I'm going to look that up and we will link to it in the show notes so everybody can see it. 
A lot of voices might tell you that you need to learn how to get better at homeschooling, but I know something about you. You don't actually need to homeschool better. You need to homeschool happier, to have more fun, to smile more, laugh more. You want a twinkle in your eye, <laughs> and you want your kids to know deep in their bones that you love homeschooling them. That twinkle is worth pursuing too, because the key to a successful homeschool is a peaceful, happy mother. And that's what we're committed to helping you become at RAR Premium. RAR Premium is a unique program that offers mentoring for you, the homeschool mom, and we offer Open and Go Family Book Club. This is a family book club you can use with all ages from 4 to 17, and it will explore language arts, reading, and we often dip into writing, science, history, all across the curriculum as we uncover so many good and meaningful ideas. The best news is we do all the prep work for you. If you'd like to get a free sample of RAR Premium so you can see if it's a good fit for your family, head to readaloudrevival.com slash sample, or you can just text RAR sample, one word, to the number 33777, and we'll send it your way. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's talk about writing. I think I read somewhere that you wrote Scylla, the first book of Scylla Lee Jenkins, laying on your back in bed on your yes. iPad. Did I make that up or no? Is that something you said? <laughs> yeah. So, and let me just say to any aspiring writers out there, you can write anywhere, seriously. And you should write wherever works for you. There's no one way to do it. The reason I wrote Scylla mainly on my iPad, sometimes on my phone, was that I was in graduate school mm -hmm. and I was in my final dissertation year. So it was so busy and hectic and intense. And I found that sort of at night I would, you know, I would be working on my computer all day on my dissertation. I would close my computer, but I wouldn't be tired. You know, I'd be so wired from all that work. And I would, and dissertations can be tense affairs. Um, and usually I'd be kind of stressed. Yeah, I would imagine. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to do something relaxing and fun. And to me, that became writing. So I would close my computer. I would get ready for bed. I would get into bed, turn off the lights, take out my iPad, and I would write for anywhere from half an hour to two hours. So just however much I was feeling. And it's so funny because you know, I, um, I realized I lived with some very close friends. They were my housemates. And they all thought I just like to go to bed really early. Uh, <laughs> and then you come out with this book and they're like, where did this come from? <laughs> And so many friends say, wait, you're writing a book? What? And I would also write a great deal on the bus on the way to the library. And I actually still do that. I write a lot on public transportation. And I write on my phone, typing with my thumbs. And I, I think one of the reasons I like it so much is there's, it's a very liberating experience. You know, I, I find writing can be really hard, um, but it can also be fun. I think particularly if you engage with it in playful ways. And for me, it just became this wonderful, relaxing ritual of, you know, in 10 minutes, I'm going to be at the library and I'm going to have to focus and read, book, you know, really obscure, dense books. Um, but in these 10 minutes, I get to imagine a story about flying horses, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, that Scylla yeah. is imagining. And so for me, that's one of the ways sort of I keep writing fun. It's also one of the ways I get inspiration. A lot of little things I see in the world find their way into my books. Hmm. 
And I would just say too, he would, I have to remind myself of this as well. I am constantly amazed at how much you can get done in small chunks. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. 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 And it's so, I mean, and I'm, I'm always sort of re-surprised by it because so I work full time. So sometimes it can be hard, especially, you know, on really busy days, it can be, or and not even days, really busy weeks. It can be hard to make any space for writing at all. And so I oftentimes just writing public transportation on the way back and forth from work, I'll try to carve out a little writing time. And at the end of the week, it's amazing to look back and say, oh, you know, actually I did quite a bit. You know, I completed a character study or I, you know, just imagined out a few different possibilities for a tough scene. So yeah, I find it very helpful for my writing and I think necessary because most writers do other things as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. We have a lot of aspiring writers listening in and who are moms (laughs) who are busy. A lot of them are homeschooling their kids too. When I wrote, and I just have written two nonfiction books so far, but the first nonfiction book I wrote, twins who are babies five and six, they were like four months old or something. So it's I tell people when they say, how did you pull that off? I say, I wrote that book in 15 minute chunks. A lot of us who want to write will go, I will write when I have like large expanses of time and therefore we never write, you know? Right. Well, and and I'm just so glad you said that. You know, I also think that writing is such a joy and it's such a privilege. Um, But historically, it's also a profession that was only available to very privileged people. You know, you know, you I think of when I do school presentations, I always show them a picture of Charles Dickens and he's sitting at his desk and he has his you know, head in his hands and his quill pen. And he's staring out meaningfully into the sky, <laughs> you know, and we talk about the fact that, yes, he had all this time to write. Right. But he also had servants and he also wasn't in charge of the children. Right. And, he, you know, right? and he, you know, he had these huge expanses of time because he occupied a rather privileged place in his world. So I'm just so glad you say that, too, because I think it can be so first so daunting to write a book. But I also think kind of culturally embedded in our minds, we have this idea that there's a right way to write a book. And it, you know, involves being kind of Charles Dickens, you know, sitting at your desk and it's fancy and you have no other demands on your time. And maybe, I don't know, maybe someone brings you food, you know, and that's that's not a reality for (laughs) some of us. Um, So so I just think it's so important that idea of, you know, just tiny little chunks. It really it really builds up, you know, it feels astounding every time it does, but those, whatever time you can get makes a difference. So when you are about to write, when you're thinking about, let's talk about when you're thinking about a new story, <laughs> yes. do you know, like, do you outline ahead of time? Do you know sort of plot points or where the story's going or what do you know before you start writing? Maybe that's the better way to ask that question. That, that is such a great question. And I, to answer, I always think of Philip Pullman, who has a quote that he basically says, you know, when I ha- a story idea comes to me, I know the problem and I know vaguely where we're going, but I don't want to know the middle because then it won't be interesting. You know, I want to see what happens next. Got it. And I, I find that very inspiring because that's very much my process. When I write, or I, at least with these, the Scylla series, and these are my first three books ever, and I'm just starting on a new non-Scylla project. Ooh, exciting. But yeah, I'm so excited. But I've found that for me, I know a story is sort of ready to start writing when I know the beginning and I know the characters and I know the end. And it's so weird because when I came up with the idea for Scylla, literally the first thing I came up with was the what are you moment that we discussed earlier. And then I knew the final scene or the the second to last scene that involves, I don't want to spoil anything, but it involves time travel. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I knew those two things. I knew nothing else. But then I started from there. And so it gave me something to work towards. While at the same time, it left me with a lot of flexibility in imagining the story. So that's, that's generally how I work. Sometimes I will outline as I go. But quite frankly, oftentimes, even when I do outline, it always changes. I think actually, and this is just something for aspiring writers to think about. You know, I, I also teach English. And I say this to my students all the time that I, I think there are two kinds of people, people who think to write and people who write to think. Oh, that's and good. That's good. yeah, thanks. Thanks. I, I, I heard that from a teacher of my own and I've stolen it forevermore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because the, there's some people who literally can't put pen to paper until they've planned everything out. And I have so much respect for those people. I am not one of them. And I think that most of us write to think, you know, I sometimes I literally don't know how I feel about something until I've written about it. And it's like in writing about it, I sort through my feelings and I you know, get emotions out of the way. And then I start thinking about it and I come at it from different angles and on and on and on till finally I have discovered what it is I actually think through the process of writing. So for me, I, it can be really scary, you know, because you think I'm going to write a book. What's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> right. It's terrifying. But I, I try to lean into that as much as possible, because I think some of the most exciting moments in writing come when you didn't even realize you were thinking about something and it just pops up on the page. I think we're about out of time, but before we go, mm -hmm. I want to hear about, I believe a little bird told me that there's a third Scylla Lee Jenkins book coming yes. out in the next year. Can you tell us about it? Anything yeah, about it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So it's going to be coming out in March. It's called Scylla Lee Jenkins, The Epic Story. So in this book, Scylla is older. So in this book is a, in Future Author Extraordinaire, the first book, she's in second grade. In this book is a classic, she's in third, but actually in the epic story, she's in fifth grade. Okay. And this, this is not a spoiler, sort of this is kind of comes to light very quickly. So the book is actually based very much on my own experiences. So Scylla's Yeya, Chinese, the, her grandfather, has a stroke, which happened to my Yeya. Mm -hmm. And he's okay. And I, and I always, I kind of want to rush to say to people, he's okay. But the stroke affected his language, his sort of capacity for language. And he had something called an aphasic stroke. And this happened to my yeah, where um, he basically recovered one language, but not the other. So when my yeah had his stroke, he before the stroke, he'd been fluent in English and Chinese. After the stroke, he retained his Chinese, but he lost most of his English. Huh. So yeah, so in the books, so Scylla and her yeah, yeah, they very much communicate through stories and they're always telling each other stories. And he's kind of the one who's instilled the love of stories in her. And so she decides that she's going to write an epic. And, you know, and they and they're always they're about struggles and defeating all the odds. I and mean, you always win at the end. And her epic, she's decided is that she's going to teach him English again. And then and that will be sort of her epic struggle. And the reward will be that he will, you know, be completely fluent again. Oh, yeah. So, and it's end of, as you, of course, right. She has to learn that that's not necessarily how things like this work, but it's, it's very much about sort of her, that process. Um, it's also about sort of the different ways, you know, we communicate with family and make family. And it's about, she's also in fifth grade. So she's really scared about middle school. So it's also kind of about all these periods of, of change and the adventures that come up. So like the first Scylla books, there's, I think it, it takes on maybe a little, a slightly heavier topic, but there are a lot of hijinks, a lot of typical Scylla adventures. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming to the Read Aloud Revival. I can't wait for more of our listeners to get their hands on your books. I think 
you are making just some delightful stories for young readers today. And I'm so grateful for your time. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you and such a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. Hello, my name is Harriet. I am six years old. I live in Minnesota. My favorite book is Kaya, one of the American Girl books. And I like it because how they hunted and gathered their food and they fished and she has a horse. What's your name? Gus. How old are you, Gus? Four. And where do you live? Minnesota. What's your favorite book? McToad Moe's Tiny Island. What do you like about McToad Moe's Tiny Island? Because he has to mow, 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 mow. Stop. Drink a glass of lemonade. Then put some oil in it. Then mow the rest. Then go on all those machines again. To get home? Yeah. Okay, what is your name? Jude. And how old are you? Nine. Where are you from? Wisconsin. And what is your favorite book? War Horse because it has lots of action and adventure. What is your name? Saya. How old are you? Five. Yeah, you just had a birthday. Where are you from? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> and what is your favorite book? Monta Mon Monta. And um, the rabbit didn't just want for him to do it, and they didn't, and they put the sandwich in there, and the bunnies eat them all. You like how the rabbits get into his pen and into his garden, and they eat all the carrots in his basket? Yeah. My name is Joshua, and I am 11 years old, and I enjoy the book Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. I like the part where the ring wraiths, they chase the hobbits around. That's a really good part. What is your name? Tava. And how old are you, Tabitha? Seven. And where are you from? I'm from Nigeria. Yeah, we used to live in Nigeria. And where do we live now? Johnson. What is your favorite book? Little Pear. And what do you like about Little Pear? That it has good recipes in there about them, all adventures. What is your favorite adventure of Little Pear? When he gets lost and the man helps him get to the, back to his home. My name is Hunter Walton and I am nine years old. I live in Okinawa, Japan and my favorite book is Turtle in Paradise. I like it because they use the word bungee instead of bottom. <laughs> my name is Bush and Walton. I am seven years old. I live in Okinawa, Japan. My favorite book is Harry Potter because they have house elves. What's your name? Esther. And how old are you? Six. And where do you live? Clarksville, Tennessee. And what's your favorite book? If I Build a Car. And who's it by? Chris Van Dusen. Okay. And what's your favorite part of that book? Where he makes the car smell, make good smells. Like what? Blueberry pine flowers. Yeah, very good. What's your name? Seven. How old are you? Three. Where do you live? 
Gethsemane. What's your favorite book? Up and down, down. Up and Down by Oliver Jeffers. Yeah. And what's it about? A penguin on the net. A penguin who wants to fly. Yeah. And what's your favorite part about the book? All of them. You like the pictures, don't you? Yeah. What's your name? Elisa. How old are you? Five. Where do you live? In Germany. And what's one of your favorite books? The Butterfly Alphabet Book. And who's the author? Jerry Polotta. Jerry Polotta. And what do you like about this book? Because there's a blue butterfly inside and I never love the butterflies. And butterflies are your favorite? Yeah. My name is Walter Kiefer. I'm 11 years old and I'm from Georgia. My favorite book is Inheritance. My favorite part of the book is when the main dragon named Sephira rips apart a building to get at the soldiers inside. My name is Kate. My favorite book is The Hobbit. I am six years old. I live in Alabama. A scene I really like is when Bob kills the dragon's mom, even if it wasn't his own idea, it was the thrush's idea. My name is Lucy. I live in Alabama. I am almost nine years old. My favorite book series is How to Train Your Dragon. My favorite book of that series is How to Cheat a Dragon's Curse. My favorite part is all along you think Fishlets is done, but I couldn't believe the end. My name is Olive and I am six years old. I live in Alabama. My favorite book is Missing Grace because Grace saved Kit. What is your name? Hey. How old are you? Two and a half. How many sisters do you have? Good. Where do you live, Chloe? In my own house. What is your favorite book, Chloe? Bear Seen Bear Book. Yes, the Bear Seen Bear Books are great. And why do you like them? After date. And? And I got sister bear. My name is Jonathan. I live in Oklahoma City. My favorite book is the Prophecy, and I like the Round. And how old are you? Five. What is your name? I'm Will. Well, I'm three. And what's your favorite book? I built a car. If I built a car? And what is your favorite thing in the book? Um, the robots sitting in the car. I'm Sophie. I'm eight years old. I live in Ohio. My favorite book is Nancy Drew. I like that she is kind, that she is brave, and she's a fun character. What's your name? Harper. And how old are you? Eight and a half. And where do you live? Albany, Oregon. And what's your favorite book? The Penderwicks. Why? Because it's adventury. Adventury? Adventurous? Mm-hmm. What's your name? Hadley. And how old are you, Hadley? Five and a half. And where do you live? In Albany, Oregon. And what's your favorite book? It is the Bantam Bears. And why do you like the Bantam Bears? Because I've seen the movie and the show and the cartoon. What do you like about them? Because they do cool stuff. Fantastic. Thank you, kids. I love hearing the books that you're recommending. Don't forget that you can get the show notes for this episode, which will have links to all the books we talked about 
the graphic that Susan mentioned during our conversation and anything else that's relevant in the show notes at readaloudrevival.com slash 114. And we also offer free complete transcripts. So if you're a reader, not a listener, or if you know somebody who's hearing impaired, but would enjoy the Read Aloud Revival podcast, you can send them to the show notes to grab the transcripts. Those are available for you there as well. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next week. Until next time, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Are you still here? Okay, well, I am too. And I wanted to check to see if you've had a chance to download the samples from RAR Premium yet. RAR Premium is committed to helping you become the peaceful, happy mom you're called to be so that your kids know deep in their bones that you just love homeschooling them and also so that they can become lifelong voracious readers. Get a free sample of RAR Premium by going to readaloudrevival.com slash sample or by texting the word RAR sample, like it's one word, all squished together, <laughs> to the number 33777.